Well, hi there, everybody. Uh, <clears throat> coming to you again from a slightly different format. Uh, we had a technical uh, problem with getting letters 22 and 23 recorded last week. So while we did those letters, I did them live, uh, they weren't recorded. So for everybody who's following along in the uh, in the videos, I wanted you to have access to letters 22 and 23 in the screw tape letters. So let's jump right in uh, to to let to those letters. Uh, 22. My dear Wormwood. <clears throat> now we've uh, never seen Screwtape this angry. Uh, listen to how annoyed he is, obviously. And apparently, uh, Wormwood has let it slip uh, that Uncle Screwtape uh, got into a little heresy. Remember a few letters ago, Screwtape was talking about love, disinterested love of God must be the real reason behind what love, behind what God does. And uh, uh, Wormwood backstabbing, you know, tries to get him in trouble with the secret police. Anyway, my dear Wormwood, so your man is in love and in the worst kind he could have possibly fallen into and with a girl who doesn't even appear in the report you sent me. You may be interested to learn that the little misunderstanding with the secret police, which you tried to raise about some unguarded expressions in one of my letters, has been tidied over. If you are reckoning on that to secure my good offices, you will find yourself mistaken. You shall pay for that as well as for your other blunders. Meanwhile, I enclose a little booklet just issued on the new House of Correction for Incompetent Tempters. Oh, it is profusely illustrated and you will not find a dull page in it. Uh, so here, just remember, for C.S. Lewis, it's not pitchforks and uh, brimstone. No, for Lewis, the 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 hell that he describes is backstabbing office politics and for anybody who's been a victim of backstabbing office politics uh, they understand the demonic nature of it all but just an eternity of this everybody looking out for themselves and constantly um uh, backstabbing each other and anyway well back to the issue at hand i have looked up this girl's dossier that's just a, a file a collection of documents and i'm horrified at what i find not only a Christian, but such a Christian, a vile, sneaking, simpering, demure, that word means modest or shy, monosyllabic, mouse-like, watery, insignificant, virginal, bread and butter miss. Ugh, the little brute. She makes me vomit. She stinks and scalds through the very pages of the dossier. It drives me mad the way the world has worsened. <laughs> and so uh, here... With no small irony, you got screw tape going, oh, the culture, right? It's all gone downhill with Christians like this. Uh, what does he mean, uh, bread and butter? Uh, bread and butter, he just means ordinary, every day. Uh, I want you to notice the kind of Christian that makes hell furious, the kind of Christian that really gets at screw tape. Think about it. We haven't really seen him this upset. What makes him really quiver? What makes hell fearful and angry and furious and, 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 and call her all these sorts of names? Is it some uh, super megachurch preacher? Is it some famous missionary? No, it's an ordinary. Notice the ordinary nature of this faithful young woman. It's the ordinary faithfulness of this Christian uh, that, uh, that causes hell to, uh, to quake and shake. I think that's worth noting. Uh, you might say it's just a mere Christian uh, that uh, uh, gives hell all this uh, fear. Well, we'd have had her, he says, to the arena in the old days. What's he talking about there? He's saying this is the kind that uh, back in the days of the Roman Colosseum, 
when uh, these uh, emperors were persecuting Christians, all, of course, driven by demonic uh, underpinnings, we would have had her in the Roman Colosseum. That's what her sword is made for, he continues. But then points out, not that she'd do much good there either, a two-faced little cheat. I know the sort who looks as if she'd faint at the sight of blood then dies with a smile. A cheat every way. Looks as if butter wouldn't melt in her mouth and yet has a satirical wit. The sort of creature who'd find me funny. Filthy, insipid little prude. Uh, insipid means flavorless. And yet ready to fall into this booby's arms like any other breeding animal. Why doesn't the enemy blast her for it if he's so moonstruck by virginity instead of looking on there grinning? So a couple things to, to pull out of this paragraph. You know, one, why does he call her a cheat? Because it looks like on the outside, from outside appearances, that she would faint and, and, and be very weak. Uh, but inside, it turns out she's got a backbone made of steel. And uh, so the devil feels deceived because he thought he had an easy win. He, he thought he had a layup. In, uh, and, and this is the kind who would go all the way to the Roman Colosseum and die with a smile on her face as a martyr for her Lord. And the fact that, you know, here, here she, uh, she has this satirical wit. She has this, you know, uh, and yet, you know, falls in love with this guy who the patient that they've been working on that they hate. And uh, again, he doesn't understand the biblical uh, sexual ethic. Here, screw tape is like a lot of uh, a legalistic, uh, puritanical view of sex, that it's all bad and wicked and evil. And, and, and he can't understand why God then would allow them to, to fall in love, get married, and, uh, and he doesn't understand the biblical sexual ethic, uh, complete uh, purity and singleness, complete faithfulness in marriage. And here they're going to fall in love, and if they get married engage in sexual activity and, and, and screw tape can't understand. Like I thought he was so interested in all this purity. No purity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. And here he hits upon, uh, screw tape is actually correct in a way. He's a hedonist at heart. He's not far off, uh, in his understanding of, of God. He's a hedonist at heart. What's a hedonist? A hedonist is someone who lives for pleasure. And that, uh, uh, he says all those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses, they're only a facade, just the image, the veneer. Or only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Screw tape here is dead on. He's quoting scripture. He's quoting Psalm uh, 16, 11. You have, made, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, there's lots of places you, you can go in Lewis to talk about this. John Piper wrote a book called Desiring God, Confessions or, or uh, something like that. Confessions of a Christian Hedonist. I may not get the subtitle right, but uh, just Desiring God. And, and Piper makes no secret. His ministry says, look, 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 I'm trying to get people to realize God has the pleasures you're really after. Your desires are not too strong. Your desires are too weak. You've just been desiring the wrong thing. You've been, you've been fooling about down every blind alley thinking this is what will fulfill you when meanwhile God has what will truly fulfill you. So Piper says every Christian should be a Christian hedonist. They should live for pleasure. They should live to enjoy life forever. But there's only one way they're truly going to enjoy life forever. Humans were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And he's where our hearts will truly find that joy. 
So screw tape here is he, he's absolutely right. In fact, uh, Piper credits partly credits C.S. Lewis for turning him on to the whole idea of this uh, uh, Christian hedonism. He calls it. Well, anyway, he goes. Screw tape goes on. Ugh. I don't think he has the least inkling of that high and austere mystery to which we rise in the miserific vision. So the beatific vision, the blessed vision, the idea that one day we're going to see Jesus face to face. Apparently there's a demonic version of this and it takes itself very seriously. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He has a bourgeois mind. There it is. C.S. Lewis in 1941 is writing this and he's the first one to call somebody bougie. In other words, bourgeois just means middle class. Uh, he's filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Ugh. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. Now, we've covered this ground before, but if you think about it, Screwtape's right. All, all these things are good things. They just are good in their proper context. Screwtape has to rip them out of their proper context or pervert them or twist them before any of these good things can be turned into uh, into negative things, into sin. You could just take them one by one. Sleeping. How could Sleeping is a good gift of God. Uh, how does it be, become a sin? When sleeping becomes sloth, you know, laziness. <clears throat> I uh, In college, I had these roommates and they were all really into this uh, campus ministry and it was known for being really good on the spiritual disciplines and they would have these intense quiet times early in the morning and uh, me, I was a night owl, so I like to sleep in late. And so my roommates, who were so spiritual, you know, and they were like, I, I just like to to rise and welcome the dawn. And I'm sitting here like, I like to welcome the noon, you know. And uh, one day I woke up and right above me, we had these the bunk beds in this uh, college dorm. And, and above me, they had taped uh, some scripture verses. Consider the ant, you sluggard, you know. And uh, they were giving me a hard time about sleeping late. And when I woke up, that was the first thing I saw was this convicting Bible verse. Uh, so um, a few nights uh, later, uh, uh, late at night, while they had already gone to bed, because, of course, they were going to have an early prayer time, I had, uh, I had taped above their beds the scripture, The Lord grants sleep to those he loves. So, uh, <laughs> but their point is still well made. Sleeping, a great pleasure of God, you know, it's a great thing. Obviously, it can be turned, it has to be twisted, though, before it becomes sloth. Washing can be twisted into an OCD kind of a, a, a germophobia or something. Eating can be twisted into gluttony or anorexia, bulimia, you know, but, but eating itself is God's good gift. Uh, eating and drinking, making love, we've talked about, can be twisted when it's pulled out of God's good context of, of uh, faithful marriage. Playing uh, when we ignore family or work obligations that we need to do because we, we're playing around with some hobby. Praying, working, you, you get the point. How can praying be twisted? Go to Matthew 6 and remember uh, the Pharisees loved to pray in a way that was public. They really only, They weren't really talking to God. They were talking to other people and making a big show of it. And uh, Jesus says they, they have their reward in full. But even praying, you see, had to be twisted. But it's a good thing. Working has to be twisted or perverted into workaholism, overwork. You, you get the idea. So he says, oh, we fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. To which, oh, please, screw tape, cry me a river, right? Nobody wants to hear about these demons whining about how hard their job is. But if you think about it, it is. Because nothing is naturally on their side. They can't create evil. They can only pervert or twist 
the good things God has made. This isn't new. This is not a new theme in the book. We've seen this over and over throughout the book. And here it is just one more time. Well, he says, not that that excuses you. I'll settle with you presently. You've always hated me and, be in, and been insolent when you dared. Insolent is, is rude and disrespectful. You hear that anger seething through and it's going to boil over in just a minute. You'll see. Then, of course, he gets to know this woman's family and whole circle. Could you not see that the very house she lives in is one he ought to, never to have entered? The whole place reeks of that deadly odor. The very gardener, though he's only been there five years, is beginning to acquire it. <laughs> in other words, even this guy's uh, landscaper, I mean, even this household's landscaper, when he starts hanging around these Christians, even he starts, it's like his, his clothes begin to smell of the, 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 the sense of this uh, presence of God. <laughs> it's, their Christianity, you might say, is rubbing off on the people who, come, who they come in contact with. Even guests, after a weekend visit, carry some of the smell away with them. Um, the dog and the cat are tainted with it. Some of my favorite restaurants are these, you know, greasy spoon restaurants where I can eat all this food that I'm not supposed to eat. It's really unhealthy. And when I come home, the problem is my, my wife can smell it on me. She says, ah, I know you've been to that particular diner. I can smell it on your clothes, you know. Uh, and that's the idea here. I, I think Lewis, Lewis, through Screwtape, is picking up on 2 Corinthians 2.15, uh, the Bible says where we are the aroma of Christ, right? To those who are being saved, it's the this beautiful aroma. To those who are perishing, it's the smell of death. You know, I think that's what Screwtape hates that smell. It smells of death to him. But but to those who are being saved, of course, they know it as this, this great aroma, uh, this great fragrance. I love this. The dog and the cat are tainted with it. <laughs> Even the pets are benefiting from the holiness of these people. And a house full of the impenetrable mystery. I think when Screwtape talks about the impenetrable mystery, he's talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit, of which, of course, he'll never uh, get his head around. He'll never understand. So he still has to wonder, what is going on? Why do these people in this household of Christians treat each other, treat each other with such kindness and such grace? What can it be? Now, we know it's it's disinterested love. It's love. But Screwtape's theology can't allow for that. So he's He's back to this quandary. We are certain, it's a matter of first principles, that each member of the family must in some way be making capital out of the others. Modern English, we say, is taking advantage of the others. But we can't find out how. In other words, he can't understand that there's no motive. It's just love. No, they've got to have an angle. They've got to be after something. They guard as jealously as the enemy himself the secret of what really lies behind the pretense, this pretense of disinterested love. The whole house and garden is one vast obscenity. It's a good good image there. The house and the garden. The garden, of course, drawing us back uh, to the Garden of Eden. It bears a sickening resemblance to the description one human writer made of heaven. The regions where there is only life, and therefore all that is not music is silence. He's quoting here from uh, George MacDonald, who is a writer that influenced both, uh, well, lots of writers, uh, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and was a mentor to Lewis Carroll, who wrote uh, uh, Alice, uh, Alice in Wonderland. Um, Lewis calls uh, George MacDonald his, his master, his, his master teacher. And so I uh, had great respect for MacDonald. Anyway, that's his line. Can you picture it? Uh, the region where there is only life, and therefore all that is not music, is silence. And now he just begins a rant. On, on music and silence. Music is a great example of, of the, the good pleasures God gives us. And so Screwtape writes, music and silence, how I detest them both. Now he's just distracted. He's all over the map. He's filled with rage. And now he's ranting on music. 
How thankful we should be that ever since our father entered hell, though longer ago than humans, reckoning in light years could express, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has ever been surrendered to either of those abominable forces, but all has been occupied by noise. Capital N, noise. That grand dynamism. Uh, in other words, uh, this quality of progress. The audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless, and virile. Ah, noise, which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires. In other words, what keeps hell constantly not thinking about morals or, 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 or love or uh, uh, all that talk in heaven? Just noise. Can you imagine microphone feedback or radio static? You know, uh, it's the equivalent of a little child who doesn't want to hear, you know, putting his fingers in his ears saying, la, 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 I can't hear you, I can't hear you, when his... Uh, uh, mom is calling him to, to clean the room or whatever. Ah, la, 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 you know, uh, uh, noise. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We've already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. Now, he really has, hasn't he? Think about uh, how much of your daily life is just noise. Uh, but heaven would be the place where there is purposeful sound that brings great pleasure, music, or just silence. Being still and knowing that he is God. Uh, beautiful. Instead, with a constant steady influx of social media and uh, uh, streaming services and just the, the noise uh, all around us. Well, um, even like, uh, it's interesting, like even this morning, like uh, the birds are singing, right? It's not just noise, it's, it's music. Anyway. Uh, we've already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end, but I admit we're not yet loud enough or anything like it. Isn't that something in the Bible when they talk about God's voice? How often do they talk about it as a still, small voice uh, that he he whispers? It's, it's the enemy that, that shouts down and wants... And, and he has to shout down because when you don't have any logic on your side of the argument, all you can resort to is just force and, and a bunch of screaming and yelling at each other. But I admit we're not yet loud enough or anything like it. Research is in progress. Meanwhile, you, you disgusting little... Now here the manuscript breaks off and is resumed in a different hand. So in other words, uh, uh, as apparently uh, uh, he has to dictate the rest of this letter to his undersecretary who is named Toadpipe. <clears throat> in the heat of composition... He dictates, I find that I have inadvertently allowed myself to assume the form of a large centipede. <laughs> so he's been transformed, and now he doesn't have any arms or hands with which to write. Uh, I am accordingly dictating the rest of my secretary. Now that the transformation is complete, I, I recognize it as a periodical phenomenon. Uh, some rumor of it has reached the humans, and a distorted account of it appears in the poet Milton, with the ridiculous addition that such changes of shape are a, quote, punishment imposed on us uh, by the enemy. So th there's a lot here, uh, but uh, you remember in the garden, uh, after the, the, the fall of man, there's a curse on the man, the woman, and the serpent. And the serpent was cursed by having to crawl on its belly and uh, uh, transformed into that. When Milton wrote Paradise Lost, it is a fictionalized account of what happened in the garden. It's not straight out of the Bible, though it has a lot of biblical uh, underpinnings. And Milton imagines that all the demons in hell that went with Satan in the fall, the, you know, the third of the demons that went with Satan when Satan rebelled, 
that once a year, as a reminder of that curse, they are forced into that uh, serpentine position again. So here's screw tape is forced into becoming a centipede as a result of that curse. The propaganda, the, the, the cap, as the kids say today, this is just cap when he says, I've allowed myself to do it. I, you know, I, I've chosen to become a, serp, uh, a, a centipede. Yeah, right, uh, screw tape. That's propaganda. That's wishful thinking to think you've allowed yourself, you, you know, you've wanted to do this. No, no, no. It's the result of a curse. And so Milton, he says, has it right. Uh, uh, Lewis says Milton has it right. But screw tape says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th this is a rumor and Milton's got it wrong. In fact, a more modern writer, someone with a name like Peshaw, and here he's taking shots at George Bernard Shaw, he's grasped the truth. Yes, transformation, transformation proceeds from within, which of course is not a Christian notion. We believe transformation has to come from God and then he can change us. Transformation proceeds from within. It's a glorious manifestation of that life force, which our father would worship if he worshiped anything but himself. In my present form, I feel even more anxious to see you. Yes, to unite you to myself in an indissoluble embrace. Indissoluble means uh, inseparable, cannot be broken apart. In other words, eaten. Screwtape wants to eat him. Signed, Toadpipe for his abysmal sublimity under Secretary Screwtape. Enlists all of his degrees, of course. So uh, here he's like, I feel even more desirous to see you. That hate has transformed him. And I think there's something going on here beyond just uh, kind of a neat literary twist there. Um, but that uh, uh, the prophets talk about, Isaiah talks about, you know, there's a sense in which we become like what we worship. Isaiah talks about these idols. They, they have eyes, but they're blind. You know, they have mouths, but they can't really uh, say anything worth hearing. They, they, they have hands, but they are, they're not strong to save. And, and the Bible says in, in the Psalms, you pick up these themes, and in the prophets, certainly. But, but those who worship idols become like them. We eventually become like what we worship. That's a profound truth. And, and here, this uh, a demonic being is a good warning to all of us that over time, you fill your life with hate, and you fill your life with this consumption uh, that, 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 that Screwtape becomes that, uh, embodies that serpent, and so filled with hate that now, like a serpent, wants to devour uh, the, the weaker creature, Wormwood. Um, and uh, uh, Lewis is a, uh, I'm thinking here of like uh, his book, The Weight of Glory. It's a little essay, if you can get your hands on The Weight of Glory. He talks about that, that over time we are becoming either more and more like God every day, or more and more like these demonic beings. And we are on a journey that, you, Lewis says, you've never met a mere mortal. <laughs> what he means is you're meeting someone who 10,000 years from now, you would either you would be shocked to see what they've become. They're going to be so much like the, the glory of God that you would be tempted to worship them uh, if you could see them 10,000 years from now. Um, or so much like a, a monster that you'd be, they'd be the stuff of your nightmares. I'm not perfectly quoting him. I'm paraphrasing him. But you see the idea that we're becoming each day. Uh, uh, more and more on one of those two paths. And uh, boy, you know, really, it really makes you want to take this stuff more and more seriously. And so uh, uh, good for Lewis using, uh, using satire to really draw our hearts to some um, pretty heavy, heavy truths. So I think that that, that transmogrifying or whatever, that, tran that transforming metamorphosis that he goes through at the end is more than just a literary device there. But, but there's, uh, there's letter 22.
All right, letter 23 in the screw tape letters. Letter 23 is all about the historical Jesus. Now, in this first paragraph, he's going to be covering old ground, themes we've seen before. Uh, and uh, he's going to talk about, if, you, if you're not familiar with this triad, it, it won't make as much sense. So let me give it to you now. Uh, the, old, the classical Christians talk about before a Christian gets saved, you really only have one enemy. Your only enemy is God. The Bible says before we're saved, we're at enmity. Uh, there's hostility toward us and God. It's not God's fault. He loves us, uh, but we've turned our backs on him. But God is a very interesting and unusual kind of enemy. He's the only enemy who wants to save those who are trying to uh, uh, harm him, who wants to kill him. He uh, wants to, to save. Once you become saved, you go from being an enemy of God. Now you're a friend of God. And now you have three enemies. And the three enemies really... Uh, can be grouped as one, but the three enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are kind of the classic summation of a Christian's enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if you think about where we've been in the book, they've tried to tempt him with the world and the flesh. The world, uh, that's popularity, right? Remember back uh, several letters ago when it talked about being invited to the cool kids table, try to get him into the right peer group. Uh, so that ultimately has failed. The flesh, whether it's gluttony or lust, he's talked a lot about sexual lust, and he's overcome that. So if the world and the flesh have failed him, remember there remains this uh, third force, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so uh, what's he going to talk about here? Uh, he's going to talk about uh, the devil. And what does the devil uh, do? The devil, remember, is the father of lies. So we're going to use lies. Allow him to have a kind of uh, a spirituality that's posing as an angel of light, but is rotten underneath. That's going to be his next uh, type of temptation. So now that you know that, see if this first paragraph makes a little more sense. My dear Wormwood, through this girl and her disgusting family, the patient is now getting to know more Christians every day and very intelligent Christians too. For a long time, it'll be quite impossible to remove spirituality from his life. Very well then, we must corrupt it. Nothing new there, right? That's what he does. He's saying, all right, if, if we can't take it away completely, let's twist it, let's pervert it, let's corrupt it. No doubt you have often uh, been, uh, you've often practiced transforming yourself into an angel of light as a parade ground exercise. Well, now's the time to do it in the face of the enemy. The world and the flesh have failed us. A third power remains. And success is the, of this third kind is the most glorious of all. A spoiled saint, a Pharisee, an inquisitor, or a magician makes better sport in hell than a mere Carmen tyrant or debauchee. Debauchee uh, is uh, uh, lustful, right? Someone who's fallen for the, 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 the sins of the flesh and a, a tyrant who's someone who's fallen for the sins of the world. But this, a Pharisee or a magician, uh, in other words, someone who's um, either becomes a, a Pharisee, super legalistic on the outside, looks like they're, they're, they're Christian, but on the inside, full of hypocrisy and spoiled, or a, a magician, someone uh, who is dabbling in the spiritual things, but dabbles off into the demonic and into the occult. So he's, he's going for that. Looking around your patient's new friends, I find that the best point of attack would be the borderline between theology and politics. Isn't that something? Attack them at religion and politics. Oh man, it's like, uh, it's like he could have written this in, uh, in modern times. Several of his new friends are very much alive to the social implications of their religion. That in itself is a bad thing, but good can be made out of it. All right, and before we read this next part, uh, again, he's very ahead of his time. He's saying, uh, uh, look, when it comes to the social gospel, when it comes to social justice, 
There's a sense in which, of course, we have a social gospel in the truest sense of the word. Walter Rauschenbusch, one of the early, early Baptist advocates of all this, he's like, how can we who've been given everything by God, who've been loved, when we had nothing to offer God, when we abused what he gave us, when we were just charity cases of his grace, how can we not now uh, care for the poor? How can we who follow Jesus, who had so much to say about the poor, whose heart was so open, how can we who've been transformed by the gospel not love the poor like Jesus loved the poor? He's saying, so, so, so the social aspect of caring for the poor and feeding the poor and, and caring for the sick and the homeless and all that, how can that not be a natural outflow of those who've been touched by the love of Christ? Of course. He says that, so that is, from Screwtape's perspective, very bad. On the other hand, if you, can, if you can sort of get the humans to take the social part and remove the gospel, you think about it. You could make like this sort of social justice warrior who doesn't care about all that God stuff, but who wants, well, that's just modern day Phariseeism. That's just, that's just morality. You know, if, if, uh, if, if, a generation or two ago, the great morality markers that made us legalistic were things like uh, drinking and dancing and swear words and playing cards. Well, fast forward and now we laugh at that and we go, oh, you know, we were so legalistic about that stuff. Well, now we can be just as legalistic about uh, our, our social justice aims and, and, and being on mission and all that, right? We can become legalistic in the same way. So that's what Screwtape's after. I, I hope now that you see that, the rest of this will make more sense. You'll find that a good many Christian political writers think that Christianity began going wrong and departing from the doctrine of its founder at a very early stage. I think he's talking about in uh, 313 AD at the Edict of Milan when Constantine, uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine, signed the Edict of Milan, making it illegal to persecute Christians. He's saying, see, now uh, uh, once it became kind of a state religion, you might say, in Rome, uh, that's where we went wrong. So we've got to use this idea. He doesn't care whether that's true or false. He's just saying, let's use it to encourage, once again, the conception of a historical Jesus to be found by clearing away later accretions and perversions, uh, that accretions are gradual accumulations and buildup, and then to be contrasted with the whole Christian tradition. In the last generation, we promoted the construction of such a historical Jesus on liberal and humanitarian lines. We're now putting forward a new historical Jesus on Marxian, catastrophic, and revolutionary lines. The advantages of these constructions, which we intend to change every 30 years or so, are manifold. And he gives four reasons. Before I go into it, I just want to point out how, um, how prescient this is. Uh, uh, in the last generation, Lewis is talking about, I think, like 1900s, 1906, you got Albert Schweitzer, uh, in, in a search for the historical Jesus, basically constantly keep people uh, 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 having the idea that they need to clear away everything, get back to what the historical Jesus was, and then change what people think that was every uh, 30 years or so. In the 40s, you had this sort of Marxian influence. And then he says, we're going to change it every 30 years or so. Isn't it something in 1985, uh, the Jesus Seminar comes out. If you're not familiar with the Jesus Seminar, uh, 1993, they published their findings in a book called The Five Gospels, The Search for the Authentic Words of Jesus. Basically, you had this, this group of quote-unquote scholars. Some people uh, uh, oppose the fact that the, the kind of scholars they used. But basically, they, they had about 500 different statements and events in the Gospels in the life of Jesus. And they used these high-profile passages. And they basically just voted uh, with beads. That's how this, this sort of famous uh, Jesus seminar moment you know, red. You would put a red bead if you said yes. Jesus uh, absolutely said this. P 
pink bead, Jesus probably said or did something like this. A gray bead is like, Jesus didn't say it, but it's it's not against what he would have done. And a black bead is, he, he didn't say it, it comes from a different tradition. And so, and then they would score it, right? Based on, a, a red bead was worth like three points and, and pink was two points and gray was one. The point that people, you know, make about the Jesus Seminar is, you're just making this up. Like, like what makes your basis for voting that this was definitely said by Jesus any better than we have the gospel record and this is the, the canon handed down to us? Um, well, Lewis said, well, it's, just, it's just one more search for the, that we got to keep going. And of course, Lewis wasn't around for the Jesus Seminar, but it's amazing to me that in my opinion, he, he really predicts it. So if you can get the humans to do this, he says, there's four reasons uh, uh, why there's such advantage to, to hell's cause. In the first place, they all tend to direct men's devotion to something which does not exist. For each, quote, historical Jesus is unhistorical. That's the point. The, the documents say what they say and can't be added to. So each new historical Jesus, therefore, has to be got out of them by suppression at one point and exaggeration at another. And by that sort of guessing, brilliant is the adjective we teach humans to apply to it. <laughs> on which no one would risk 10 shillings in ordinary life, but which is enough to produce a, a crop of new Napoleons, new Shakespeare's, and new Swift's in every publisher's autumn list. What's his point? He's saying, well, every year it's fashionable in Britain, of course, to go back into these uh, biographies and to, and to say, you know, how about a, uh, a Marxist reading of Shakespeare or a feminist understanding of Swift or, you know, so you suppress some things, you highlight other things they said, and you come away with, with having a whole new view, enough to, to fill up a whole new a set of bookshelves every fall. And well, they do the same thing with Jesus. You know, what about a socialist reading of Jesus? Or what about a, a capitalist reading of Jesus? Or, or whatever. So in the second place, it's all, it's all made up. You, the documents say what they say. So the, the historical Jesus is not, in fact, all that historical. In the second place, all such constructions place the importance of their historical Jesus in some peculiar theory he's supposed to promulgate it. In other words, he's supposed to have put forth. He has to be a great man in the modern sense of the word. Uh, one standing at the terminus of some centrifugal and unbalanced, centrifugal and unbalanced line of thought, a crank vending a panacea. Panacea is a, a cure-all. We thus distract men's minds from who he is and what he did. We first make him solely a teacher and then conceal the very substantial agreement between his teachings and those of all other great moral teachers. For humans must not be allowed to notice that all great moralists are sent by the enemy, not to inform men, but remind them to restate the primeval mortal, moral platitudes against all our continual concealment of them. We make the sophists, he raises up a Socrates to answer them. So a lot here, basically what he's saying is all truth is God's truth. If a philosopher comes along who can see clearly something like Socrates, uh, 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 then, then that's God's truth. They're, they're, because God's laws are sort of the grain of the universe, and you go against the grain at, at, at your own peril. So the sophists were a group of philosophers who sounded wise, but were actually spouting a bunch of nonsense, and uh, Socrates is the one who called them out on it. Well, anytime there's a bunch of nonsense being called out, and some good truth comes forward to call it out, uh, uh, he, he, you know, so uh, that, that's, that's all from God. His point here is, if you get people to think of Jesus just merely as a teacher, well, no mere teacher would have said the kinds of things Jesus said. No mere teacher would do the kinds of miracles he did. So uh, third, our third aim by these constructions, uh, sorry, back up. So if you can get people to just think of, of him merely as a teacher, 
um, then you can get them to miss the obvious fact that they don't have to either bow down and worship him or not. And of course, Lewis somewhere else famously in Mere Christianity says, uh, to say he's a mere teacher, the things he kind of, the things he said, you know, that he, he and the father are one and he allowed people to worship him. He's like, look, he was either a liar or he was a lunatic or he was the Lord. There's no fourth option. Uh, Lewis's famous trilemma. Don't just say he was a good man or a nice moral teacher. He was liar, lunatic, or Lord. Anyway, our third aim by these constructions is to destroy the devotional life. For the real presence of the enemy, otherwise experienced by men in prayer and sacrament, we substitute a merely probable, remote, shadowy, and uncouth figure, one who spoke a strange language and died a long time ago. Such an object cannot, in fact, be worshipped. Instead of the creator adored by its creature, you soon have merely a leader acclaimed by a partisan. And finally, a distinguished character approved by a judicious historian. In other words, strip him of his divinity uh, altogether. And fourthly, besides being unhistorical in the Jesus it depicts, religion of this kind is false to history in another sense. No nation and few individuals are really brought into the enemy's camp by the historical study of the biography of Jesus simply as biography. Indeed, materials for a full biography have been withheld from men. So smart. In other words, what he's saying is m most people are not brought into faith by sort of classical, all these, like, like a study of a full biography of Jesus is not what leads people to faith in Jesus. In fact, we don't even have 30 of his years of life we don't even know about. We don't know about Jesus as a teenager and so forth. So what does lead people to Christ? The earliest converts were converted by a single historical fact, the resurrection, and a single theological doctrine, the redemption, operating on a sense of sin which they already had. And sin, not, not some new fancy dress law produces a novelty by a great man, but against the old platitudinous universal moral law which they've been taught by their nurses and mothers. In other words, the sense of conscience that every kid has. You read it in fairy tales, you read it wherever, but there's a sense of right and wrong. There's justice. Uh, the, the, the evil witch gets thrown out. And the bad king is taken down and the rightful you know, prince and princess come to rule, whatever. The Gospels come later and were written not to make Christians, but to edify Christians already made. It's interesting. When we do get all our information about Jesus, it's written by Christians for the church. You know, of course, the, the Apostle John wrote his. He says that people may believe, and by believing, they may have, have life in his name. So, of course, but, 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 but the stories of Jesus were, were really all about one thing. This dead Nazarene Jew got up and walked out of a grave. That's it. If the resurrection is true then the whole thing now has validity. And if the resurrection is false, then none of it is worth, as my mom used to say, worth a hill of beans. Uh, I don't know if I, they said that in Kentucky. I don't know if they say those kinds of things in Santa Ana, California, or anywhere else in the world. But I know they say those kinds of things uh, in Kentucky. You get it. The resurrection is everything. And even Paul says, hey, if Christ turns out not to be raised from the dead, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is is hopeless, and we're to be pitied above everybody because our hopes are up. Our hopes are high on the resurrection. So, the historical Jesus then, however dangerous he may seem to be us at some particular point, is always to be encouraged. About the general connection between Christianity and politics, our position is more delicate. Certainly, we do not want men to allow their Christianity to flow into, over into their political life. For the establishment of anything like a really just society would be a major disaster. On the other hand, we do want, and want very much, to make men treat Christianity as a means, preferably, of course, as a means to their own advancement. But failing that as a means to anything, even to social justice, the thing is, the thing to do is get a man at first to value social justice as a thing which the enemy demands, 
and then work on him to the stage at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice. In other words, no matter what, try to get him not to think of Christ as the end of all things, but Christ is just a tool to get what you really want. So people might use evangelical Christianity because it gets their particular political party in office. Christ will not be used. It's one thing to say, I have the political views I have because my Christianity informs them. That's fine. Screwtape says, of course, is against that. God is for that. Uh, but to say, I'm really for my political views, and Christianity is a convenient tool I use to leverage more people into my political views. No, no, no. The enemy will not be used as a convenience. Men or nations who think they can revive the faith in order to make a good society might just as well think they can use the stairs of heaven as a shortcut to the nearest Walgreens, <laughs> the nearest chemist shop. Fortunately, it's quite easy to coax humans around this little corner. Only today I found a passage in a Christian writer where he recommends his own version of Christianity on the ground that, quote, only such a faith can outlast the death of old cultures and the birth of new civilizations. He's quoting Reinhold Niebuhr. You see the little rift? Believe this, not because it's true, but for some other reason. That's the game. And here we've heard this uh, many times before, but uh, uh, the, the key question anybody should ask of Christianity is not, does, does your Christian faith, why should I preach the gospel? You know, uh, when I'm filming this, Easter is coming up this week, this is Holy Week, why should I proclaim the good news of the gospel? I've got a couple things I, can, I could do. Should I tell people you should become a Christian because it'll give you comfort? Well, it, it has given me great comfort. My faith has. Does it, is it because it'll give you peace? Well, it has given me great peace. Is it because it'll give you better relationships? Well, it has improved my relationships with others. Is it because it can help overcome your anxiety or your depression or your addiction? Well, Christianity has resources that can help all those things. Nope, those are not the reasons. There's one reason a person should become a Christian. You should become a Christian based on whether or not it's true. What's true? Did a dead Nazarene Jew 2,000 years ago named Jesus get up and walk out of a grave? If that's true, you should believe it. And I believe it because there were eyewitnesses. I believe those eyewitnesses told others and those eyewitnesses uh, uh, wrote down the gospel. They were just as shocked by the whole thing as we are today, uh, but I believe it. And, and, and suddenly everything falls into place. Why do I believe the Bible? Because the man back from the dead uh, believes it. And that's good enough for me. If Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, uh, the rest is rock and roll. So there you have it. There's uh, uh, my attempt to walk us through uh, letter uh, 23, and I hope that uh, hope that it helps you. God bless.